I want you again to turn to a strange scripture as we deal with Israel and the contention that is raging around her as a national people and as a land. I want to bring you to part nine here tonight. And as we do, I want you to turn to Acts chapter one and verse six, reading through to verse nine. Acts chapter one, verse six to verse nine. My message tonight, part nine, Israel, who owns the land? That's what the controversy is over. Reading from Acts chapter one, verse six. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him that is Christ, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel. And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Let's pray tonight. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Father, this book is filled with so many things that are yet to happen, that the Spirit of God is revealed through prophets and apostles. And Father, we thank you for the encouragement, the blessing of the Holy Scriptures. We thank you that they're a comfort unto us, that they stir us, that they challenge us, that they secure our hope in the future. My God, that it, they place our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And my God, I thank you tonight, Lord God, that, that you are a covenant-keeping God. You not only make covenants, but you keep them and you perform them and you watch over them even to a thousand generations. You have swore by yourself because there was no one greater and you have sworn in your holiness that you, you cannot lie. That what you said to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to their seed shall surely come to pass that there shall always be a nation of Israel while there's stars in the heaven. Nor God, thank you, God, that you're a covenant-keeping God, that you're a God that has gone to great lengths and shown us that you cannot lie, you cannot break one promise, that you'll fulfill all that is written in this book. And Lord God, all these things in the Old Testament were written for our learning. And Lord God, for the blessing and encouragement of the body of Christ, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you tonight, Lord God. We bless you. And even as there's a war raging around the national state of Israel, Lord God, we know there's a spiritual battle, Lord God, raging over your church. And the issue is our inheritance, the spiritual land. And Lord God, we, we want to be so conscious tonight, even as we consider Israel, its conflict, its wars, the disputing of the land, that there's a far greater spiritual unseen battle raging around us, your church, right now, around every genuine believer. There is a 
warfare concerning us inheriting, nor God, the land of promise. Father, please help us by your grace and your mercy. Nor God, speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. My message, part nine, Israel, who owns the land? This is one of the most hotly disputed issues of this generation, the generation before. And if our demise comes, the generation after us. This is one of the central issues. The people of Israel, the Jew, is one of the most controversial people on the earth. But also Israel, a small plot of land, is one of the most controversial bits of land. And the city of Jerusalem is one of the most controversial cities in the entire world. I believe this is what the Old Testament calls the controversy of Zion. The controversy, the war that rages around the survival, the existence of something called Zion. Both spiritual and physical. Because listen to me, God always uses the natural to teach us about the spiritual. First comes the natural, then the physical. If you have wisdom, you're not going to just look at Israel, learn about it, study or listen preaching to learn about the national state of Israel. In doing that, you're going to learn many lessons about the spiritual. They are an earthly people. We are a heavenly people. And I want to tell you what happens to them naturally happens to us spiritually. So even as we study here and look at Israel, always be mindful. They're a national people. They're a natural people. They're an earthly people. But we are a spiritual people, an eternal people, a heavenly people. You can learn about the warfare of the real church, the real Christian, the real preacher, if you understand that. We've just read from Acts Chapter 1, you might think it's a strange <coughs> scripture to start with. My subject is Israel, who owns the land? And considering who actually owns that little bit of land, I go back 2,000 years to the words of Jesus just before his ascension into heaven. He's already rose from the grave 40 days before. He's alive physically, <coughs> in his resurrected body. When we come to Acts chapter 1, for 40 days after his resurrection from the dead, bodily, physically, visibly, for 40 days, he intermittently appears to the disciples, his apostles, even to as many as 500 disciples, physically, Shown that he's risen from the dead. During that 40 days, we're told here in Acts chapter 1 that he spoke to his disciples, his apostles, about the kingdom of God, things concerning the kingdom of God. That's the context of this, of him saying this. Look what he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, who are they asking? Not Jesus in his earthly ministry. He's resurrected. He's got his new body. That's who they're speaking to. A Christ who is supreme in power, victorious over death, 
here he is there asking him a question, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Here the disciples, the apostles, listen to me, they've been with Christ intermittently for 40 days. They passed through that dark hours of his crucifixion. They experienced his resurrection, personal restoration of Peter, who denied him three times. Peter, come and dine. Do you love me? Asked him three times because he denied three times. He's restoring them. Do you know what? They locked themselves behind closed doors, terrified that they would die. But not now. They're with the resurrected Christ. And they ask him this question, these apostles who are about to experience Pentecost, wilt thou at this time, now, if you're here physically in your resurrected body, are you going to restore now the kingdom to Israel, not to the church? Don't get the terms confused. He doesn't say church. Lord, wilt thou at this time, right now, not future, at this time, restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto him, it is not for you to know the time or the season. They were interested in the timing. There's no discussion about here about the kingdom being restored to Israel. No discussion. The apostles, Peter and the others, don't even entertain the thought of, will it happen? Or is it now spiritual? They don't discuss that. They're actually saying, at this time, they were interested in the timing of the kingdom because for 40 days he's spoken to them about the kingdom. There is a restoration of the kingdom. You know what restore means? To give back, to bring back what they once had. To give them what is rightfully theirs. So they're talking about the physical nation of Israel. They know about the church. They know about the Great Commission. But they're asking a specific question. The kingdom, the kingdom of God being restored to the physical nation of Israel. Is it going to be now? When is the timing of this? A very important question. See, then this isn't just some idea. They're quoting from the Old Testament. This term about restoring the kingdom to Israel comes out of the Old Testament in many places. Listen to what it says in Joel chapter 3. For behold, in those days and in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. So in other words, there's going to be a period of time that Judah and the city of Jerusalem, the land of Israel, is going to be in captivity. There's going to be a marked time when that nation comes out of captivity. Joel says, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the city of Jehoshaphat. Sorry, into the valley of Jehoshaphat. We know that as Armageddon. We know that many call it the Third World War, the no one says we may not have a fourth or a fifth or a sixth. Don't limit it. You never know in our world. But here what you have is scriptures. When you go into the Old Testament, you frequently read 
about the captivity of Jerusalem, of Israel, of the restoration of the kingdom being given to them as a physical nation. Many promises, many statements, much teaching, many prophecies given concerning this. We also read this in its most fullest extent in Ezekiel's prophecy. Ezekiel speaks about the restoration of Israel to her land. The same mountains, the same cities, the same valleys, the exact same bit of land. In fact, when you go into Ezekiel from chapter 35, remember we spoke on that about the mountains of Israel and the perpetual ancient hatred of all those peoples descended from Esau and Arab nations, the perpetual hatred, ancient hatred, and them taking the land, desolating the land, destroying the land, opposing the land. What does God begin doing in Ezekiel 36? Before he speaks about the restoration of physical Israel to the land, he prophesies to the physical land. Don't tell me God doesn't care about land. He cares about this bit of land, I want to tell you. So beginning in Ezekiel 35, he begins prophesying to mountains, to valleys, to cities, to the mountains of Israel in particular. And he begins prophesying, saying, I'm going to prepare you for the restoration of the people. I'm, I'm telling you, you're going to blossom again. You've been desolate for many generations, but I'm going to restore. When you come to Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, that's not about the church primarily. It can be used that way. Listen to me, all the promises are ours in Christ Jesus. We can take a prophecy like that, that's specifically, literally for Israel, and it does belong to us as well. There's nothing wrong with that. It's for us spiritually as the church. What's for them naturally is for us spiritually. The same promises, the same prophecies, they belong to us. So don't think that, well, all the promises are Israel. We can't touch them. No, they're written for us as well. All the stories, the covenants, the promises. We've been brought into all the covenants of promise that were given to Israel. They're for us as well, very literally. So in Ezekiel 37, you have, you first get the prophecies about the land. Then you get this entire revelation of God's restoration of Israel. I'm going to bring forth the land again. I'm going to put you back in the physical land. The same people that were scattered all nations being restored to the same nation, the exact same mountains. It has to be the same people and the same land. And he begins to talk. Eventually, as you go through Ezekiel 36, you begin to read of their eventual spiritual revival of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then you get the time of it. It's going to be at that time when Russia, Magog, Turkey, Iran, Libya, and the others attack Israel to destroy her. So you get the timing of this, of the whole process of when it's going to reach finality or a climax of spiritual restoration. But it's going to begin with the land. The land is very important in all of this. So you get the 
disciples here, they came together and they asked him saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And what does he say? He said unto him, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. In other words, he said, it's not for you to know this. But notice what he does say, verse 8. But he shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses. Do you know what they're speaking about? It's speaking about Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Remember Joel prophesied that? Joel prophesied this was going to happen. And Joel, when you go back and read there in Joel as we did, first you get Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Then he moves on to say, that's going to be in place. Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit, is going to be in place until that day when Israel gets restored from her captivity. And then all nations are going to come down to the valley of Megiddo. So you get a full spectrum here. And you're getting the same in Acts chapter 1. You're beginning to see, you know what? It's got nothing to do with you. You're not going to get given the time. Peter, Matthew, John. What does he set their focus on? The Holy Ghost, the power of the Holy Ghost. You will receive power to be witnesses. Go evangelize in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And then when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Christ spoke this and then he is gone. In this message tonight, Israel, who owns the land? We have all heard over these recent weeks the term from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Never has this term been so broadcast. Never have so many nations heard the statement from the river to the sea. College students all over America took this up and began repeating it, shouting it, crying it passionately. In British streets, German streets, Irish streets, across the nations, national people of the world all took up this phrase, from the river to the sea. Not really understanding what they're saying. Do you know what it's speaking about? That little bit of land. Don't tell me the land doesn't matter when our world is ablaze. Every area of society talking about this bit of land. Every nation is talking about this little bit of land at the minute. It's that little bit of land between the River Jordan, that mucky, dirty river where people got baptized in, and the Mediterranean Sea. Do you know the little strip known as Israel today? At its broadest point is only 70 miles wide. At its extreme widest point, we would blink and drive that. But its average distance across the land from, what did they say, from the river to the sea? I'm talking about this bit of land. The average distance from the river to the sea is about 30 to 40 miles, no distance at all. 
You could actually take the entire nation of Israel and fit it into Southern Ireland three times. You can take the entire nation of Israel and fit it into Munster. It would actually be hidden within Munster. And yet that little bit of land has twice the population of all of Ireland. This term from the river to the sea. Let's have a look at who is using it. We know in our world there are terrorist groups using from the river to the sea. Palestine will be free. We know terrorists are using it. Militants are using it. But also casual supporters of Palestinians. Irish people who don't even know what they ate for breakfast this morning just repeat it as another thing on Facebook and change their little picture to announce from the river to the sea. They don't even have a clue what they're talking about. This term was banned in Germany. The, met, the head of the Metropolitan Police in London, when he ignored it in big demonstrations in London, said, well, there's many ways to interpret this term. Oh yes, maybe someone means some radical statement, but it can be simply a plea for democracy and freedom. Nothing aggressive. This is the head of the police department, the Metropolitan Police in London. Now he's an expert on religious statements. Let me just settle this very simply, and let me give you concrete evidence. The first ever mention of this statement ever, that should pretty well settle it, shouldn't it? The first time this statement, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, was ever used and created was by the PLO in the West Bank in 1964. That was the very first use of that term. They originated, they created it, and they were calling for the utter annihilation of Israel as a state by bombing, murder, utter destruction. That's what they meant by it. They rejected in 1947 the UN partition plan and demanded one united Palestinian state free from the Jew, free from Israel, and they called for a perpetual war upon the Jew and upon the nation of Israel. Hamas used this statement officially for the first time in 2012 by using it in official documents. And then they placed it in their charter in 2017, calling for the violent destruction of the state of Israel. Quote, Hamas rejects any alternative to the full and complete liberation of Palestine from the river to the sea. So we have the statement from the river to the sea. Our world is ablaze with this little bit of land, 70 miles at the extreme, 30 miles on its normal basis. This little tiny bit of land is hotly contested. Governments are stirred over it. The UN, the EU, America, China, Russia, Ireland, all ablaze. Every area of society is burning over this. It is one of the most hotly disputed issues of this hour. Let me give you several areas of great opposition to Israel being in the land, which are worldwide. Number one, religious opposition. There is a dynamic 
religious opposition to the physical national people of Israel being upon that bit of land. And it comes from Islam. Islam is considered one of the three biggest religions of our world. They would claim they're the biggest. Within the state of Israel today, Islam is the second largest religious group or religion practiced within the nation of Israel. 18% of their population claim to be Muslims. That's about 1.7 million people within Israel are practicing Muslims, and they have the liberty to do that, although many may contest that. When you look at the Middle East, Israel only possesses 0.1% of land in the Middle East. Not 1%, 0.1%. That's all the land. They are surrounded immediately by 22 Arab Muslim nations. Notice that they're Muslim nations. Religion dominates them. Like Catholicism used to dominate Ireland, so Islam dominates their societies. It's remarkable. So Israel's surrounded. There's much ground for Arabs, for Muslims. Let me tell you, the DNA of Palestinians today, are they a unique people? Well, they have the same DNA as Jordanians and Egyptians and Syrians, the same DNA. That tells me they're not different. They're not a unique people. They're not an ancient people. They have no archaeology in the land of Israel. They have no history. There has never been a Palestinian people with the state in Israel. Never. But look at this. This is the first great opposition. Is Islam as a religion, a world religion, one of the three biggest international religions that sits engulfing it, surrounding it, with armies, with power, with political might are all set against Israel possessing this little bit of land. It's a tiny strip. They've got all of these nations. But yet, they have a hatred. They have an indignation. When you go to the Quran, you read in the Quran, Islam's holy book, the name Israel, 43 times. 43 times. And I can take you through this very easily. Forty-three times. Do you know when you read that, and I went through them, I started going through all the mentions of Israel in that book. Do you know that within the Quran, they acknowledge Israel's right to the land. They acknowledge that they are the people of that land. Modern Muslims will tell you differently. But I'm looking at the Quran, the Hadith, the traditional teachings, the myths of Islam are different. They're aggressive against the land of Israel. But it's very interesting what you have here. Islam is split into two forms of Islam. You've got Sunni Muslims and you've got Shia Muslims. Now, the Sunni make up about 85% of all Muslims in the world, 85%. And the Shia Muslims are 15%. 
The Sunni, Turkey is a Sunni Muslim nation. And Iraq, or Iran rather, Persia, is a, Shuni, is a Shia Muslim nation. They're in opposition. So you've got two forms, and this has gone on for 1,400 years from their beginning. As soon as Muhammad died, there was a dispute within Islam. Who's going to replace him? So you've got two forms of Islam because they appointed two different leaders to take the place of Muhammad. So from the beginning of Islam, you've got an internal dispute over a lineage. And you know, so you've got Turkey and Iran who are going to join together to invade Israel with Russia. And they're in agreement today. They've made a covenant today to join with Russia. They're in agreement, yet they're opposed in their Islamic beliefs. And yet they're joined. What unites them? Israel unites them. So that's the first thing. You have religious opposition. Is this Islamic opposition? And of course, we know Jerusalem's not even mentioned once in the Quran. Yet they claim Jerusalem as one of their three holy cities. They actually say that Muhammad, first of all, they said that he only went to the holy mosque in a certain place and they claim it was Jerusalem. Then they said, no, he went on his horse from Jerusalem, from where the golden dome is, and he ascended up into heaven. The only problem is the Islamic armies didn't reach Jerusalem till five years after he died. But this is what they claim. These are all the stories within the Quran. Israel's called the Holy Land. That's the name that they actually give uh, to it. And so you've got this radical Islamic religion and much of it is radical. You know all the, all the ones who are opposing Israel and they'll attack Israel. They say it's a religious war we're involved with. We do it on the basis of the Quran. We're doing this for Allah. You, you know what some of their leaders have said? If you die fighting a Jew, you will get a he, you'll be rewarded as a hero. You're a hero if a Jew kills you in warfare. The second thing is military opposition. We have heard nothing but wars against Israel. Great armies, 48. 67, 73, tens of thousands, numbers of nations, military power. Who wins each time? Israel wins each time. But look at the military opposition. Third of all, you have terrorist opposition. You have Hamas, PLO. You've got the various, there's not one or two terrorist groups. There's numbers of Muslim terrorist groups. You know where they recruit? They recruit in London. I guarantee they're recruiting in Ireland somewhere. They're recruiting in all the cities of the world. They're recruiting over Europe, straight through to Berlin. They, they will stir up these terrorist groups. They're, they have an inbred hatred and antagonism. We must get Israel out of this bit of land. There's political opposition. The UN is opposed to Israel being in the land. They have spoken more against Israel than any other nation in the entire world. You've got, you've got tyrannical systems. You've got bloodshed. You've got China doing all sorts of things. 
the UN doesn't speak against them. It speaks against the little land of Israel. Right across our world, politicians, kings, princes, leaders of men, legal establishments, they're all got their focus on Israel. They're opposed to Israel being in the nation, being in the physical land. There's media opposition. I'm going somewhere. I'm taking you somewhere here. There's media opposition where the media marches out. How quickly did our world forget what a massacre took a place? But last of all, this is the last opposition I'm going to mention here. And it's the most important. It's the one I want you to think about here. Theological opposition. The word Theology, theo, God, the knowledge of God. The term theology basically has come to mean, now I've got a different definition for it, of course, but generally in the church they say theology is just a biblical teaching about an aspect of what God says in this book. My definition of theology is like William Ames, the old Puritan. He said theology is the teaching that makes you walk with God. I prefer that. That's my definition. I stole it from him. But do you know what? Today, there's theological opposition to Israel. And we dealt with it in the two previous weeks. Replacement theology. This is from within the church. And this is the one that's important. It's not the political, not the religious, not the military, not the terrorism not the media. It's that that's taught within the church by those who claim to be born again. Preachers, pastors, teachers of the word who love Jesus and the Bible. Yet there's a theological opposition. There is a teaching that they teach against Israel having the land. Do you know what they've got to do first? They steal, like we dealt with last week. Identity theft. Israel no longer means Israel. The church is Israel. We are spiritual Jews. Once they steal the identity, what do they do now? They spiritualize the land. Listen to what replacement theology teaches about the land of Israel. And this is what we're going into here tonight. They say the covenant and promises concerning the land to Israel are already fulfilled. Fully complete. God's got nothing else to do with it. It is fulfilled. It is finalized. It has happened. There's nothing else to happen with it. So it's a completed covenant. The everlasting covenant, the covenant with Abraham, it's fulfilled. Don't worry about it. It's not for you. Second of all, some of them teach because they all teach different things because they have to get the land, rid of the land or do something with the land. There's others who say the covenant is disannulled. Because Israel rebelled, sinned, didn't accept the gospel, the promise of the land to Israel is disannulled. They have lost their right to it. They can never recover that. Others say it was transferred. In other words, it's gone to others. Oh yes, it's still there, but Israel has no right. It's open for everybody, for anybody. It's for all people, for every nationality. Then there's others who say it's spiritualized. The land is Jesus. So they spiritualize it. So say, yes, the promises are still being fulfilled. Yes, it's still for us today, but it's for the church. It's in Jesus. It's not a physical possession. It's a heavenly possession. 
let me deal with this. We're going to go to scriptures now. I'm talking about the utter opposition. And listen to me. When you see Israel, the opposition politically, socially, academically, theologically, from terrorists, you're hardly getting a full view of the opposition against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Do you realize there's a raging war around the church of Jesus? Do you realize there's a war of annihilation spiritually, invisibly? Every time you turn your television on and you're seeing rockets and you're seeing soldiers, terrorists, bombs, desolation, That's nothing compared to the spiritual war going on in our world. There is a war raging, invisible. You wonder why you're in the midst of a battlefield. You wonder why you feel you're going through so much. We are soldiers on the battlefield. Do you know what civilians can lie on in the morning? A soldier has to be in his position. He's got to have his weapon. He's got to be ready. You're not your own. You're a soldier. You've been bought by a price. You know, when you go into the army, the sergeant major doesn't have much mercy on you. No excuses for sleeping in. Well, I felt sick. I just thought I'd stay in the Bible or in the bed. Uh, There's no room for that. Listen to me. I'm going into the core of the scripture after scripture about the land tonight for where we're going in the weeks ahead. And we're going to deal with this in the new land, in, in the new year. Get my words all back to front here. As we go into the new year, I'm going to move to Israel concerning Bible prophecy in the last days and what is just about to happen in last things. But concerning this land, there's so much opposition to take away the land from Israel militarily, legally, and theologically that she has no right to the land. Listen to me carefully in the next statement I'm going to make. One great scholar who used to be replacement theology about 10 years ago, he radically changed his mind. He was a theologian. He was a great scholar, but he believed in replacement theology. But he went back to the Bible. He wrote two books on all the promises in the Old Testament given the land to Israel. And this is what he said. Over 1,000 times in the Old Testament, the land is either explicitly promised to Israel or it's indirectly inferred over a 1,000 times. Do you think it's accidental to have a statement like that where a physical land is given to a physical people and it's repeated times without number? Here's another statement he made. I haven't counted all these, so I don't know. But it was enough to convince him, and he made a radical change at the peak of his career, theologically. Because he said, there was a veil on my eyes that I couldn't see this. He said, it's so obvious. But he said, I had a veil theologically. And I spiritualized the land. I spiritualized all the people. I stole their name. I said, I'm Israel. I'm a real Jew. He said, I was so wrong. So let's just go to a few of these scriptures. But this is something else he said. He said, the word covenant in the Old Testament 
mentioned about 74 times, appearing in five books of Moses, 73% of the time that the word covenant is mentioned in the Old Testament, the land of Israel is connected with it. In other words, you can't separate covenant from a physical land. A physical land. You can't separate that. So let's look at this covenant connection. It says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, and this is Abraham meeting with the Lord. It says in Genesis 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy land, or of the Chaldees, or present-day Iraq, Get thee out of thy land. And notice where he came from. This is the beginning of the physical people of Israel. God calls one man and his wife to come out of what is today Iraq near Babylon. That's where God found his people. So he speaks to this man Abraham says, Get thee out of thy country, thy physical land. And from thy kindred, thy family, he didn't obey that part, slowed him down, delayed him. And from thy father's house, he didn't listen to that part. And you know what? He never got into the land until his father died. He tried to take his father with him. God says, don't take your father. I'm sure it'll be okay. I'm stepping out. I've left my land. You didn't leave your father or your household or your kindred. Lot's going to cause you problems. And he says, and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. This is the first promise. Then in verse 7 he says, and the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, unto thy seed I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. So here's God appearing to Abraham. This is the beginning. Your seed, your children, from Abraham, I'm going to give a land. This land. He shows him the land. He didn't own it. He didn't possess it. He didn't build a house in it. He was always in a tent, always building an altar, always on the move. But he never put down roots in the land. But God said, your seed is going to possess it. Your seed is going to own this land. Then in Genesis chapter 15, verse 12, and when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and lo, a horror of darkness fell upon him. Notice what God's going to do. God is about to make a covenant with Abraham. It's not a covenant of you do your part and I'll do my part. What does he do? He puts Abraham to sleep. Then he makes the covenant. That means the covenant isn't with Abraham. Notice very carefully what happens here. And he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. It's a prophecy. He hasn't even had one child yet. This is yet to happen. He's prophesying hundreds of years into the future. You know, God can prophesy about this hour right now exactly, explicitly. Give you the time frame, give you the details, give you everything. He is absolutely in control of world history. And so here he says, and thy people 
shall serve them and they shall afflict them 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come up out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. Turn to Abraham now. But in the fourth generation, they shall come thither again to this land. They're going to come out of Egypt. Though he doesn't mention that in the prophecies, is that land where they're going to be for 400 years. And they're going to return from that land to this land. It's very important where they come to. They can't just take up any land, invade any land. This is the land that I'm promised them. And he's telling Abraham very clearly. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Notice two flames of fire come. Abraham's asleep. There's animal sacrifices here prepared. Abraham had it prepared and he had to shoo the birds of the air away. And then he, God puts him to sleep. Why would God put him to sleep and then begin making a covenant? Because God makes it with himself. He's not making it with Abraham. He's making it with himself saying, I'm making a covenant. Listen very carefully. It's about a people and it's about a land, this covenant. And so this smoking furnace and this burning lamp pass between the pieces of the sacrifice together. And in the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. He's asleep. He's asleep. God put him to sleep. And then God makes a covenant, a blood covenant with himself. Two persons are making this Abrahamic covenant. You know, the Bible calls it an everlasting covenant. It doesn't have beginning and it doesn't have an end. It can't be fulfilled at Calvary. It hasn't been fulfilled. It's an everlasting covenant. It's a perpetual one. It's got no beginning. It's got no end. This is God making a covenant. You know what he's doing? He's revealing his mind, his plan, his purposes. Listen to what he says. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, unto thy seed have I given this land. It's the first thing he says. Thy seed. I'm giving them the land. I'm making a covenant with you. It's very important that I, the holy God, two of us, we're making a covenant in the blood. We're swearing. We're revealing to Abraham, who's asleep at the minute. Best he could do is keep the birds away. Now a horror of darkness is upon him. Now he's having a revelation of his people 400 years in captivity. But they're going to get delivered and they're going to come into this land. I, by covenant, am giving you this land. Listen, it's perspective from the river of Egypt. That's the Nile. What was this? From the river to the sea. Oh no, it's far bigger, the Abrahamic covenant. To the seed of Abraham. I'm making a covenant. So he gives the dimensions from the river of Egypt, the Nile. Israel's never possessed all of this land. Onto the great river Euphrates. That's in Iraq. That's the other side of Iraq. That's the whole area. It's a massive area. Israel has never possessed that. Some people think they've got too much land. Oh, no. Not according to Scripture. This wasn't 
fulfilled in the days of Joshua or in the days of Solomon. It never has been fulfilled. And listen, he says, the, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadomanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephians, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. He is naming distinct peoples, lands, nations. Peoples are always identified with certain areas of land. So this is the covenant. God's saying, Abraham, I'm making this covenant with you, but it's for your seed. You'll never own a bit of the land. Apart from that bit of land for Sarai, when she dies for a tomb, you purchase that. That's the only bit of land he ever purchased that he ever owned in the entire land. He, he owned no other, but it was for his seed. His seed is going to own the land. His seed possess the land. His seed is given. Do you realize that land is given by an unconditional covenant? This is not a conditional covenant. That comes later through Moses. If you do, you abide in the land. If you don't, you get put out of the land. That's Moses. That's the law. That's not the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant has no conditions. I give you the land. So much in this, I could say. Chapter 7, verse 2, again. And I will make my covenant between me and thee. This God and Abraham. And I will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. This is a man who hasn't had one child. He can't have children through Sarah. And yet God's saying, I'm calling you Abraham, the father of many nations. Not one nation, not one family, many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram. But thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. But then listen, so many nations, many kings, entire peoples are going to come out of Abraham. Do you know Abraham's one of the most unique men who's ever lived in the face of the earth? Three of the world's greatest religions all look to him as the father of the faith. That's phenomenal. Most of our world's population look back to Abraham. Most of 8 billion people all consider Abraham a great man of God. Here he is. He can't even have one child by Sarai. But God said, I'm going to make you many nations. But listen to the next part of it. God never makes a mistake. And I will, make, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and thy seed after thee the land. Notice this now. This is more. This isn't just many nations. I am going to give the land wherein thou art a stranger, all of the land of Canaan. So he mentions it. He names it. So he is going to do many things. Many peoples are going to come out of him. But he says, notice this. I make thy, my covenant with your seed, a particular seed. This little bit of land, this little strip of land that Israel is in today. He says, I am going to give it to you for an everlasting possession. This is the Abrahamic covenant. Don't get it confused when this is given again to Moses. 
the same promise, but with curses and conditions attached to it. Don't confuse that. See, you're either going to live by grace or you're going to live by law. And everyone's saying they lost it. You know all these preachers, replacement theology, and say they've lost the land. They've got no right. They disobeyed. They're rebels. You're preaching law. You're preaching the covenant of the land in the law of Moses. And you're absolutely right. It's conditional. It's law. You obey me, I'll bless you. You disobey me, I'll curse you. That is law. That's not the gospel. What did what does Paul say in the New Testament Galatians? That the gospel was preached to Abraham. The gospel, it's grace. It's, this is an entire message of grace. And so within it, the promises made, this little bit of land's going to be given as an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, thou shalt keep my covenant. Therefore thou and thy seed in their generation. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. Do you know when God is speaking this? There's an old man, a hundred years old. His wife, Sarah, mother of many nations, he's changed her name. Now I'm going to call you the mother, not Sarai, but Sarah, mother of many nations. She's 90 years old. This old man and this old lady. And God is speaking to them. All of this promise, what's going to come out of your relationship? This old lady. Do you know the mark of that seed? Circumcision. In their flesh. They get a land for a perpetual inheritance. It all goes together. Then in 17 verse 18. And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael. Look at his mind. They're an old couple with no kids. But he's got a child called Ishmael from Hagar, the servant. You know why? He's trying to work out God's promise. Please, I beg you, don't in your life. You know what you're in danger of? You read the promises. You pray. You believe God. Nothing happens. Okay, I'll do it then. I'll create it. I'll make it happen. I'll work this out. That's very dangerous. That's not faith. Faith is when everything's against it. It seems impossible. Nothing's going to happen. God's not answering your prayer. Oh, well, I'll just change direction. You're making a real mistake. Real mistake. Abraham done that. So he brought forth Ishmael. Sarah thought about, yeah, why don't you sleep with my servant, Hagar? That come out of Egypt. So dangerous. So listen, Abraham, he's trying to work. How do I deal with this? All of this, this old couple, no child from their own relationship. And Abraham said unto God, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Do you know what he's saying? Okay, do it all in Ishmael. Here's Ishmael. Let Ishmael be blessed in this covenant. Then God speaks to him. And God said, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed. And I shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant with his seed. Not Ishmael. Not just any Arab. Not just any child born from Abraham. Oh yeah, Ishmael will get a blessing. You know, you could be blessed of God and not in covenant with God. 
Ishmael got blessed by God. So many in the church today, you know what they're doing? Bless me, bless me, I want to be blessed. I want to be in covenant with God. I want to be in a covenant, secure relationship with God. You could have the blessing of God on your life and you could lose it. God could bless you and do things in your life, heal you, deliver you, but not be in covenant with God. We've seen them. We've seen people come in, God cleans them up, sets them free, but they're not in covenant with God. You could be blessed, but not in covenant. I want the covenant. And so you see here, Isaac, no, I'm not going to make the covenant with Ishmael. There's a lot of Ishmaelites running about the Middle East today. Oh, yeah, they might have blessings and promises, but they're not in the covenant. Isaac, I will establish my covenant with Isaac for an everlasting covenant. My covenant concerning the land is an everlasting covenant. So not only to Abraham, now to Isaac, Ishmael is excluded. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes. I thought Jacob had twelve. Oh, Ishmael had twelve as well. Twelve sons, twelve peoples come out of him. Twelve princes shall he beget and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will, I, will establish with Isaac, which, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this time in the next year. All these replacement theologies say race doesn't matter, only grace. They say land doesn't matter to God and genealogy doesn't matter to God. God doesn't care about families or race or anything else. I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of ink written here concerning God's sin, not Ishmael, Isaac. It's very precise because God is after something. He is raising up a people. He is being exact. And I want to say it's in Genesis 26 verse 2. And the Lord appeared unto Isaac. Go not down into Egypt. A famine had come. He's in the land. He's in Egypt, in the promised land. It's given to him by covenant. But a famine came. God speaks to him, says, go not down into Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee. I will bless thee, for unto thee, unto thy seed, I will give these countries. He sends them to the land of Philistia, of the Philistines. Don't go to Egypt. Go into the land of Philistines, because I'm going to eventually give that to your seed. Philistia, where is it? Gaza. It's present-day Gaza. So here's the covenant with Isaac, not a covenant of law, a perpetual everlasting covenant made with Abraham, with Isaac. Don't go down to Egypt, go into Philistia, into the land of the Philistines, because I'm going to give your seed these countries and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father and I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven and will give unto all thy seed all these countries and thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Just want to let you know, I'm only a third of the way through here, okay? I just want to lay this in because you know what you're getting bombarded by, by media? 
theologians, military powers, everybody saying Israel has no right to the land. What did I say over a thousand times in the Old Testament? You've got the promise of the land to a particular people. What about Jacob in Genesis 28, 13? And behold, the Lord stood above the ladder and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land, underline that, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed. Do you see already what he said to Abraham? He hasn't forgotten it. Hence said, well, you're different. The land doesn't matter. He is keeping his promise, keeping his covenant. He is remembering a certain family. Believe me, Jacob wasn't up to much. Remember, he was a conniver. Remember, Abraham lied about his own wife, Isaac, or, or Sarah, twice over. Lied and said, she's my sister. These are not perfect men. They're not totally sanctified. They're men who God is working in. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But I tell you what, they've got the covenant. They're in the covenant. God has made a covenant. God is working in their lives. And so here Jacob wakes up. He's got this dream of the angels going up and down on the ladder. And God speaks to him, the land you're lying on, it's yours. He's reconfirming the covenant as he does in every generation. And to your seed, and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth. Imagine being told that. I'd love to be told that spiritually. Imagine the Lord speaking to me in the middle of the night and saying, Keith, before you come to meet me, your spiritual seed is going to be like the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore. Can you imagine being told that? And believe me, that'd be a lot easier than being told your physical seed is going to be like that. Think spiritually. But these men are being told physically your seed are going to be more than the stars of the heaven. And it says, and thy seed as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in thee shall thy seed Shall all, and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest and will bring thee again into the land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken unto thee. Again in Genesis 35 verse 11. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful, multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee and kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. That's his 12 sons. Israel as a nation. He's speaking not about Esau. Do you see that Esau is a child of Abraham, of the seed of Abraham, but he's not in the covenant. God does not make the covenant with Esau or Ishmael or any of these others. Just because you're born naturally of Abraham doesn't mean you're in the covenant. You could be blessed. There could be a plan for your life. God could do things in your life, but you're not in the covenant. This Abrahamic covenant was very particular. This land, it's always this land. I'm going to give it to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and your seed, your children. An entire nation is going to be raised up to possess this. 
and the land which I gave to them, I will give it to thy seed. I will give the land. Genesis 48, 3. And Jacob said unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said unto me, Behold, I will make thee fruitful and multiply thee. I will make thee a multitude of people and will give this land to thy seed after thee, notice this, for an everlasting possession. How many times do we need to hear this? Is God a liar? Is he unfaithful? Do you realize this is an unconditional covenant? It's not conditional. Through Moses, it's conditional. It's law through Moses. Do or die. Do the law, you live. Break the law, you die. Keep the law, you stay in the land. Break the law, you're out of the land. It's law. That is in grace. That isn't the Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, it is an everlasting possession. Something you possess, something you own. He's saying specifically to the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I give this land, this here, you can't spiritualize this. This physical land is your family's land forever as a possession. It belongs to them. Time without end. I've got so many scriptures to go through here. But let me finish on this. I want to finish. And I'm barely touching on this. So the smart aleck replacement theologians who will mock what I'm saying tonight say, ah, but it's never once, re and this is what they say, it's never once restated in the New Testament that the land belongs to Israel. Never. As soon as you come to the gospel, to Jesus, remember what we read, Acts chapter 1, remember what we, about Israel the kingdom being restored. They say, when you come to the New Testament, it's spiritual. The land is Jesus. We inherit a spiritual land. It's all for the believer in Christ. That covenant is fulfilled at the cross. Really? Can I just close by proving them wrong? With a few things, and I could go to many things here. But let's just test this that they say. For example, Acts chapter 7, in the city of Jerusalem, when Stephen is standing preaching his last sermon, it is a dynamic sermon. If he hadn't been stoned to death, he would have been greater than Paul the Apostle. But as he stands preach, listens, he gives them a history lesson. He's preaching to the Jew. He's preaching salvation in Christ. He's preaching redemption. You know what's already happened? The death, burial, Resurrection of Christ, his ascension into heaven, and then his sending of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. That's all happened. This is the New Testament in grace, in the church. Listen to what Stephen preaches. That deacon that came out of the church, Jerusalem. Speaking of God, Acts chapter 7, 3. And said unto him, Speaking to Abraham, he's quoting from the Old Testament. So he goes right back into Genesis. Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Quran. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him 
into this land, wherein ye now dwell, preaching to Jews who are rebels against the word of God. They're about to murder him. They're angry against the gospel. They hate what he's preaching. They gnash on him. They're going to stone him to death. But look at this. Stephen in preaching, he's saying, you, this is what you're caught up in. The land that you live in, wherein you now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it. Speaking of Abraham, he didn't give Abraham an inheritance in the land. Stephen's preaching to the Jews. No, not as much as to set his foot on. He didn't even own enough to stand on with two shoes. Abraham didn't even own that much in the land. Yet God says, I've given it to you as a covenant for everlasting. Then he goes further here. Listen carefully. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession to his seed after him. When as yet he had no child, and God spoke on this wise, that his seeds should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil 400 years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. Why isn't Stephen spiritualized in the land? Why isn't he saying, you've lost the land? Why isn't he saying, the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was fulfilled at Calvary? This is a master theologian. He is a man of God filled with the Holy Spirit. He's a man working miracles. He is dynamic. Since if you understand what I'm saying tonight, this is radical stuff we're preaching tonight. It's dynamic. It destroys the whole replacement theology lie. It destroys it. Stephen standing preaching years after Pentecost, and he's still acknowledging this covenant with Israel. These are the worst of Jews, the most rebellious, the most opposed to the gospel. But he's not saying, you've lost the covenant. God hates you. Not a word of it. Not a word of it. He's saying this land is still that land. He's acknowledging the land. He's a Christian, spirit-filled, born again. He's in a spiritual inheritance. He's saying this land is still that same land. It's still a covenant land. It's still the land that you're dwelling in. This is dynamic. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And to Abraham, the God of Isaac, and circumcised him the eighth day. Here's the second time. Acts chapter 13, verse 16. It's the apostle Paul. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand. I think it's in Asia he is at this time. Men of Israel and ye that fear God. That's the Gentiles. Give audience. The God of this people, uh, the God of this people of Israel chose our fathers. He's an apostle preaching the gospel in Gentile countries. But he's speaking to the Jews. O men of Israel, 
And he's speaking about the election of Israel as a nation, of our nation. Oh, Paul was in the church now. He doesn't even recognize that he's part of them anymore. Yes, he does. Look at his sermon. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with a high arm brought he them out. And about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their lands to them by lot. And after that, he gave unto them judges by the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And after him desired a king. And God raised up unto them Saul, the son of Kish, the man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. Again, they're all historians. They know their Israeli history. They know the Old Testament. They're quoting from all of this history. Then he moves on. He said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised up unto Israel a Savior, Jesus, when John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Let me give you a third and final scripture as we close, as I cut to the chase. Do you see how a man like Stephen and Paul speaks about the physical land of Israel in the New Testament as the church? Nothing's annulled. Nothing's fulfilled. Nothing's been spiritualized. It's talking about a physical land. This one is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. Paul the Apostle writing as well. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed and went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the promise. What was the promise? It was the land. In Hebrews 11, it's a whole constant sermon about all the men of faith. This man of faith done this. This woman of faith done this. You know what it's talking about? God made promise to them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I've promised you a land. I've made a covenant with you. What did they do? By faith, they went in. It's our land. It's being commended in this great chapter of faith heroes. Men who believed the promise that the land belonged to them and went in and possessed it were men of faith. It is a mark. Paul is preaching to the church in the New Testament. And so, saints of God, I've got, I can't tell you how many more scriptures. And I'm telling you, it's for this, hear me tonight. It is a physical land. It is a physical people. They did rebel. They did get cast out of the land. The judgment came upon them. They lived under the law of Moses because they rejected grace. They lost the land from AD 70 all the way to 1948. But listen to what Ezekiel 36 says. Remember Ezekiel's prophecy that I said at the beginning about this coming back, this restoration. When, when will the kingdom be restored to Israel? Never use mine, go preach the gospel for the next 2,000 years. 
But listen what Ezekiel says, and I believe this for our day. Israel did get brought back physically to their land. Remember, through Moses, the law, and I've jumped over all the scriptures. You're going to get cast out of the land. You'll be scattered. Numbers in Deuteronomy, it says this. You're in the land. You are in the land. You're going to get scattered. But then you're going to get restored again. Listen what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel 36, 24. And I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries. Who? Those that got judged and scattered amongst all nations. It only happened once in the entire 4,000 year history of Israel. Only once, AD 70, they began to get scattered to all nations. So Ezekiel is prophesying about a time after that. I will gather you out from all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you. That means they get brought back to the land when they're not clean. Water upon you and ye shall be clean. They're not clean when they come back. They're going to get cleaned in the land from all of your filthiness and from your idols. When I restore you back to your land, you're going to have many idols, but I'll cleanse them. A new heart will I also give you. A new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. Israel has not been restored spiritually yet. They've been restored physically to the physical land. But remember in Ezekiel's prophecy, it begins with a physical restoration of a physical people. The same people scattered from the same land will get returned to the same land the same valleys, the same mountains, the same cities. And when they come back, it's for a reason. I'm going to restore you to the land, but you'll be sinners when I gather you. Then I'm going to begin restoring you. Bone is going to come to bone. Flesh is going to come on. Muscles are going to suddenly appear. And I'm going to keep prophesying. And bit by bit, an entire nation. You know, at the end of that vision, do you know what he says? I'm talking about the land. The physical land. Can you have it any clearer? And yet, what do we have in this day? They're trying to steal. Not only do they steal the name Israel and Jew. You know what they're doing? They're trying to steal the inheritance. And you know what? If God can't keep his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about a physical land, how will he ever keep the spiritual covenant to the church of an entire new heaven, a new earth, a heavenly Jerusalem. If he doesn't keep the promise about physical Jerusalem in the last days, which he made by covenant, he'll never keep that covenant about a spiritual otherworldly kingdom that's going to come down out of heaven, created perfect, beautiful as a bride that's going to be joined to Christ for all eternity. Saints of God, I'm telling you, there's more in this than you realize. We're looking at a physical world. I'm not defending a physical nation or a government or some IDF army. I'm not doing that. You know what I'm saying? I'm defending the honor of my God, my covenant God. His covenant remains with them. They don't even believe mostly. But you know what? Israel's never been as unified as now. 
And there's an entire generation of young Jews. They come from immorality, all sorts of barrenness. You know what they're doing now? They're getting on their knees and praying to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for this ancient covenant that you've made with Abraham with Isaac, with Jacob, with their seed perpetually after them. Lord God, we're, we're not playing games with this. We're not playing theological games. It's your character. It's your promise. It's your covenant. It's the oath that you swear. Lord God, you, you are a mighty God, and we love you even this night. We bless you. We praise you. We exalt you. And Lord God, just as you've been faithful unto them, we know that you're a covenant-keeping God. And Lord God, that you'll watch over your covenant to perform it. Let me just give you one. Sorry, I, I'm just jumping over so many scriptures, but I can't close. I can't let you go until I quote this last scripture. And this is the final one. Psalm 105, verse 8. He hath remembered his covenant forever. Forever. What covenant? The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. I've got a task for you. I want you to go home and online as well. Tell me how long is a thousand generations? Go and find the answer. And that will begin to give you. See, this is just to give you an idea. This is to move it into the realm of eternity. But you don't understand eternity. So he says, because you don't understand eternity, I want you to think like this. Imagine... The word which I have commanded is going to be kept to 1,000 generations. This is what he's talking about. God remembers his covenant forever, which covenant he made with Abraham, his oath to Isaac. That means an oath is the same as a covenant. And confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel as a nation for an ever lasting covenant. What do you think he's going to say next? What do you think the next verse contains? Listen what the covenant, the oath, the law is, which is everlasting, which God cannot forget, which he says, you know what? This promise, it's going to be for a thousand generation. Verse 11, saying, unto thee will I give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance. If you try to spiritualize this, annul it, or make it only last 2,000 years, you're a very brave man because you're now infringing on the character of God, the promise of God, the covenant of God, the word of God. I would not want to be in that position where I begin to say, it's all over, it's finished. It was all natural. The people, the promise, the covenant, the land. And it means absolutely nothing to God. We're going to see in the new year, in the weeks ahead, of prophecies concerning the land, the people, their yet future, and they're connected into the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is real, spiritual, physical, eternal. And he is the one that made this. God bless you tonight.